In the 1970s, a future top-notch podcasting team was born, and then raised on military bases because their dads were in the Air Force. These Gen Xers eventually grew up and were unleashed upon the world. Today, looking forward to retirement, they survive by dishing out their opinions. If you have questions that need answers and an open mind, if you can spare 60 minutes a week, and if you have internet access, maybe you can listen to Kenyatta and Jack Save the World. These are the times that try men's souls. Never fear, though, listening friends. We are here with you. Once again, we back on the block. Thanks for coming back to a brand new, all A plus Lister 800 credit episode. Does that make sense? Doesn't matter. I just said it. Um, as everyone probably knows, I'm Kenyatta, and that gentleman over there is Jack. Yes. Hey, hey how are you? Um, I mean, I good. know the answer, good. but you know, we have to fake it for the our listening friends. We're not faking it. Right. We're we're re it's a dramatic reenactment. <laughs> I am doing so well. I am <laughs> prospering and thriving and my soul is at peace. Yay. <laughs> That's dramatical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Listening friends. Listening friends, we hope you are doing much the same and we are glad you've joined us again. We are. Um you know, things are happening, and we're here to talk about it, because that's what we do. So without further ado, Jack, you mm -hmm. have a WTF. I do. And now that I think about it, there's a part of me that's thinking maybe we should have discussed this ahead of time, because frequently we have the same thoughts. And I hope that we aren't about to have the same WTF. But mine involves alumnus of the show, Marjorie Trader Green. And the little um, the little felony she committed yesterday on the house floor. Okay, no, we didn't have the same thought today, but I am intrigued. So please, that would be as they were having whatever hearing they were having. Who knows? They're all made up and bullcrap. It had something to do with Hunter Biden's laptop, and then she held up as the congressional people often do in those hearings one of their poster boards with the picture. And it was a bunch of naked Hunter Biden pics from his laptop. She okay. showed naked Hunter Biden pics in a house hearing. That in itself is kind of low, but in Washington, D.C., what she did is called revenge porn. And that's right. a felony with perhaps a maximum of up to five years in prison. And it'd be kind of hard to say that she didn't do it since, you know, it's recorded. What's good? First of all, let me just point out the obvious. Well, it's obvious to me. I don't want naked Hunter Biden pictures in the privacy of my own. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if Hunter Biden wants naked Hunter Biden pictures. <laughs> I mean, he, he did. He wants somebody. At anyway, one point. <laughs> at one point. <laughs> But knowing her 
and the people that still obviously believe in her. It may not be the Freedom Caucus. We're not sure anymore. Um, Were they ever? It's up for debate, but I digress. Um, it's just going to turn into a an explain away of, well, you need to know why he he's not innocent and why we need to investigate. It's just going to turn into, I did this for a reason, as opposed to, I am just a despicable waste of space and a useless carbon-based life form. It's going to turn yes. into some long-winded explanation of, of why she had every reasonable justification Uh, yeah it should be although you if they were to try to prosecute it it should probably be fairly easy that she does not like hunter biden and you could probably make the case that it was done out of spite which of course is part of the whole revenge porn thing so i hope they go after her and i hope that they arrest her on the chamber floor (laughs) that ain't gonna happen but that would be beautiful it would be it would be something. It would be something. No, they're not gonna get on the floor, but she'll she'll deploy tears. Oh, I'm or sure. just or more likely whining and screaming and make such a fuss as though she somehow got denied her free pair of undies of Victoria's Secret. And no one will want to bother with it because she's made such a big deal out of it. It it'll it won't it won't happen. Yeah, she's obviously a despicable human being. But that was part A. And the truth, there's a part B that's related because it's another one of our favorite people. And that would be Representative Lauren Boebert, Mm. who was walking along the hallways of the Capitol. And there were some people that were giving out uh, like a little pamphlet that had a little pin in honor of somebody that died. And I believe it was Uvalde. Mm-hmm. the Uvalde shooting and so they were handing it to you know senators and reps as they were walking by and they handed it to her and they said whatever and then she took it and then she walked over to the trash can and threw it in the trash and it was recorded now these gals don't care anymore do they no I still think they need to go fighting with each other we need to see that that'd be the only thing I'd be interested in watching them do but I, I don't even know if that's I don't even know if that's enough. Just, just, just do them like they did Searcy in. Game oh, uh, no. Shame him down the square. Yeah, but then that would be. We'd be subjected to that. Yeah, that's a visual I don't want. I mean, you don't. We don't. They don't have to get stripped. I'm thinking just the humiliation, public humiliation. You know, to walk them from like you know, the Capitol or the White House or something, or straight, you know, straight down the street to the to the Washington Monument or something. Because that's like literally a straight shot from the Capitol. Just it's not long. You can see it. You know, if you stand here, you can see it. Right. It's not long. It's enough. Right. Yeah. You know, and there's always food trucks. There's always food trucks out there. So people can have a whole well-rounded afternoon of entertainment watching them get shamed down, right. down the street. <laughs> Mm-hmm. What if we mm-hmm. locked them in a cell and made them listen to them give speeches repeatedly? Because they that would have to be Speech. torture for them too, like themselves speeches listening that they to gave themselves. Oh, yeah, oh. that would have to be pretty torturous for them as well. Can you imagine twelve hours of having you to listen to her or them? If it was each other, I mean, sure, throw that in there too. 
I mean, them listening to themselves doesn't matter. They clearly love to see, hear themselves talk because they do it so much. Right. They but somewhere around each other. Somewhere around hour eight, they would probably mm. even grow tired of their own voice. I don't think so. I just I just don't think so. I hear what you're saying. <laughs> I don't think so. I think it would be more effective if it was each other. It would yeah. be each other. That would take that. I would take that live. I would take that live on C-SPAN. That would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. it, this is basically a case of, of two people, two out of many up there on Capitol Hill that have done ridiculous and disrespectful things for so long. And no one's ever really made them pay in consequences. And they just keep continuing to do it. Right. Because no one's yeah. ever said anything. And they just keep continuing to do it because they really don't give a shit. Well, yeah, and at, at one point, do you not think that a staffer, when they were making the giant poster board with the naked pics of Hunter Biden, thought, you know, maybe this is going a little too far. Maybe this is a bad idea. Somebody maybe thought it. Nobody said anything. <laughs> well, you know, perhaps she had told them to do it anyway. And then, of course, our hero, Representative Jamie Raskin, then went off on her when he got his time. So, yeah. I guess for for these two, any attention, bad attention is right. better than none at all. Yeah, they're, they're pointless. I just I, I I hate to see I hate to hear stories of these people wasting taxpayers' money. Right, doing Mean Girl High School shit is ridiculous. Just like they like, there's really probably a burn book, just right. like in Mean Girls, going around out there. <laughs> Regina George yeah. is the worst human being ever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're definitely. Oh. But yeah, mm -hmm. I guess one, I don't know if it's good news or not, but, you know, Lone Bobart only won in her district this last election by 500 votes. Mm. And the guy that she beat is already filed and is running against her for the next one. And apparently he has outraised her by 10 times, five or 10 times the monetary amount. So, which would, be, which would be great if that was a guarantee of victory. But it matters how you spend that money. And what are you telling the people? What are you telling the people it, besides mudslinging and telling everybody how horrible she is? What are you telling them about what you're going to do for them? Because I have a feeling that's what it's going to come down to is a bunch of, of right. mudslinging as opposed to. This is how I can work for you. Yeah. I, I have no idea how that's going to play out other than yeah. I hope that he wins. Yeah. For for their sake. For the people's sake. But we'll see. When when does she have for re-election? Uh, what? Yeah, 24. Okay. Well, yeah. Ooh, let's gear up because <laughs> this next yeah. year is going to be great. Uh, yeah, that's not going to. We're not in for a national shit show. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost to talk about. Um, anyway, that was my WTF. Moving on to yours. <laughs> Mine is um, not quite uh, so catfightish, but it is interesting, and I do love. I do love a story about newly formed governmental agencies. Um, according to ABC News. The Pentagon has a task force that handles what are known as UAPs, 
unidentified anomalous phenomenon, which all of us regular John Q publics call UFOs. Right. And they say that being caught off guard by, quote, intelligence or extraterrestrial technical supremacy, end quote, remains a top concern as they analyze more than 800 cases of mysterious sightings reported by U.S. military personnel dating back decades. The task force is called the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, or AARO. And, you know, the government always has to have acronym. That's great. But apparently this task force was put together sometime last year to investigate these things. To, quote, detect, identify, to detect, identify, and attribute mysterious objects of interest in the air in outer space and underwater with special focus on mitigating potential threats to military operations and national security. Mm-hmm. Did you know there was a task force at the Pentagon that did this? I knew that they had released some stuff, but I didn't know there was an office that was like spearheading doing all of that stuff. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah. I find that interesting. And as their investigations apparently have shown, a lot of this so-called mysterious phenomena have been balloons, drones, debris, or animals, birds. Right. But they go and investigate everything that gets reported or everything that gets the significance that gets reported. Right. And they say a small number of the reports, roughly 2 to 5% of cases, are unexplained anomalies. I like the idea of unexplained anomalies. But let's just say, and I personally believe that, yes, there is extraterrestrial life out there. I also believe two things. Mm-hmm. They've been watching us, and they either have concluded that, one, most of what they're getting is probably uh, technology-based information, you know what they can pull TV and things in the nature. And based on that, they conclude that we're idiots and we would be ripe for the annihilation or two. They have concluded that we're idiots and they'd rather not bother. It's that, a matter of time. That that's one of my options that, <laughs> that they've seen stuff and they're like, Let's just quarantine that little system because they're not ready. You're not. And then there's another part of me that thinks, you know, maybe South Park had it right when Earth is just a reality TV show for the rest of the universe. Hello. (laughs) That was like the the galaxy. That was literally the basis of a Stephen King novel. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) So there's that. And then um, my actual thoughts is there is probably extraterrestrial life out there mm-hmm. i just don't know if they've actually come here because of the distances involved true and i'm gonna go ahead and make the assumptions since you know we're not the center of everything they probably have a lot of other things to investigate as well. right um, so we just may not be that interesting or yeah or they they've seen our science it. fiction and they're like we're aliens we do not want to go there yeah we probably could wipe them out but jesus christ it's just not worth it 
And how do aliens know about Jesus Christ? That's also another question now that I brought. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, if, if they've got a hold of our technology and that's how they're. Well, yeah, they would. Yeah. yeah, they would know. They would know. They also would know about um, Independence Day and how, even if they try to step foot on planet Terra, <laughs> there's always going to be scrappy survivors and pockets of humanity who will fight to their last breath. <laughs> To maintain our way of life. So beautiful. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, yes, there is an office that investigates this. And I, I, I'm i not surprised because there's always a, some kind of governmental office or task force or cabinet or department that's investigating something. So that's not new. But I like the idea that somebody somewhere says, hey, this stuff happens enough that we probably need to have somebody full time. So let's let's go ahead and do that. Yeah. And let's, give, let's give it a snappy acronym. Okay, go. I think they could have given it a better acronym, but it is the military and they're not known for while they do love them, they just don't they're not always good. Strategic homeland <laughs> initiative. Whatever, yeah. whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. is like or Tony Stark's like, I think somebody really wanted that to spell shield. <laughs> He's like, we're working on it. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I found that interesting. Like there's a whole task force and they say, yeah, you know, it's um, it's a concern. It could yeah. happen. It could happen. Yeah. And then, you know, if it happens sometime relatively soon, I hope for all of our sakes, Jeff Goldblum is still here blessing us. And he rolls up. With a computer virus. I, I hope for that. I hope for our sakes. Right. I just I just really hope Jeff Goldblum is involved somehow. I it doesn't matter. <laughs> maybe maybe if maybe we could trade the aliens like leave us alone and we'll give you Elon Musk. They don't want that. That's part of the reason why they haven't shown up yet. <laughs> no, they, they want they want to put him in charge of their social medias companies. Oh, they want oh, they want the whole shit to tank. Oh, okay. Fair. Yeah, he's he's still over there mad about threads. So <laughs> right. what, can <you> do? <laughs> what can you do? He's still stewing over that. Oh yeah. Boy. Yeah. That, that's why you don't offer to buy companies joking around on Twitter where they take you serious. <laughs> like, oh, you want it, huh? Okay, here's some here's some paperwork. Yeah. hmm maybe not fire everybody. And then have Mark Zuckerberg hire him. Snap him right on. Hey, you guys want to do the same thing you were doing over here, but better? Let's go. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, it'd be cool to see alien life. Um, yeah. And in on honesty, there's actually a chance that a couple moons in our solar system could have their own life forms underneath the ice. Uh, mm-hmm. Jupiter's moon Europa. It is got a nice ice layer over a ocean and they you know because of tides and everything there would be like the life would be like you know the shrimp that live around the vents in the bottom of our ocean it would be something like that because it wouldn't obviously live from sun (laughs) and then there's a chance that saturn's moon enceladus might have life it is like um europa an ice planet that has an ocean underneath. So it would be sort of similar. They would be very different looking probably because Enceladus is only like 300 miles wide or something like that. 
So the mm. gravity on there would be complete, you know, very, very low. Mm. Um, and then also Saturn's moon Titan may have life. And that would be completely wild because Titan's entire uh, system is based on uh, methane gas. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> so it would be a completely different type of stuff. It has a water cycle and everything. Well, not a water cycle, a cycle like our water cycle on Earth, on Titan. It's just that it's all made of, you know, carbon gasolines and fluids and, <laughs> you know, it, stuff like that. So, yeah. And I don't I don't know that a lot of people think about things like that when we talk about extraterrestrial life forms. Yeah. Like they're the most basic of life forms. They're not ready to board up ships and come rolling out for us anytime soon. So. Yeah. But if another planet or if the moon has some sort of shrimp like life, that's life on another planet or a moon. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It counts. It counts. Yeah. So I think we're safe. Yeah. I think. We're yeah. Safe. The cool course, thing about think- Titan. Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, I was, was going to say. Well, well, I mean, real quick, if, if there's any threat like that near and I put that in quotes near us, I think it'll affect us inadvertently. Like it won't be, it'll be some kind of instinctual thing or some kind of weird phenomenon. It won't be right. like conscious thought involved. It'll just be like something starts floofing out of space and drifts or something like that. Yeah. That might yeah. be the biggest start we'll ever have, you know, yeah. in our lifetime. We, we'll probably be nothing more but pure balls of energy by the time we encounter anything else. So if, if, yeah. if any, every, if any semblance of humanity makes it that far, right. but I'm, I'm just flapping in the wind. Go ahead. Right. <laughs> I was going to say the cool thing about uh, Saturn's moon Titan is it's actually larger than the planet Mercury. So if it wasn't around Saturn, it, they'd call it a planet mm-hmm. and um, it's atmosphere. The pressures and everything are very similar to earth, even though it's, you know, not water-based. Mm-hmm. So that would be a completely crazy type of life form because it would probably not be carbon based. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, so there you go. there's our thoughts on it. Listening friends. There's our thoughts. So yeah. chugging right along. We are chugging right along. Our WTFs this week were brought to you by the letters W T and F. Ding, ding. Having said that, if that doesn't give you a hint about what today's topic is, I don't know what will. In light of oh, ongoing attacks on the quality of education for American children, I came across a story about this oh, a week or so ago. And doing some reading on it, I found out some things I had never known about. So I thought it would make a fine topic for today. Okay. And that topic is Sunny Day, sweeping up clouds away. On my way to where the air is sweet. Can you tell me how to get, how to get to Sesame Street? There's more, but I went ahead and you know, stopped her a bit. But. Yeah, because they got the gist. We're going to talk about Sesame yeah. Street and the cultural phenomenon that it has become. <gasps> so here we go. 
The show debuted on November 10th, 1969, before our time, because we are spring chickens up in this joint. That's right. (laughs) And the 26-minute pitch reel that the creators of the show built their proposition on involved some little puppets in a room talking about a new show for children that they were putting together. And they were trying to figure out a title for it. Hmm. A couple of options that flew around were the two and two or five show to which another puppet responded. Two plus two don't make five. You meatball. They don't. Then how about the two and two ain't five show? Other options included the little kitty show and the nitty gritty little kitty show. Of course, as we know, none of those titles stuck. But that was part of the 26-minute pitch reel, which, as we know, launched what ended up being not just an American phenomenon, but a worldwide one. Mm-hmm. And the history of that is quite interesting. The need for more um, dedicated or more or varied ways to educate our kids arose from the Lyndon B. Johnson administration's Great Society Agenda, which was a series of federal programs that carried the ambitious goal of eliminating poverty and racial injustice. And as part of these aspirations, Johnson, who had taught poor Mexican-American children while a student in college, created Head Start in 1965, seeking to disrupt the multi-generational cycle of poverty through early education programs for disadvantaged preschool children. And I am not ashamed to say that back in the day when I was a young, single, broke as I don't know what mom, I enrolled my kiddo in Head Start. And I think... That was probably one of the most advantageous things I could ever done for her at that age. Um, And studies have shown it gives them, and these like um, one or two years just before kindergarten that usually Mm -hmm. kids go into Head Start. When I tell you that it did a world of wonder, and I really feel that helped set the basis, along with what I was doing, helped set the basis to give her a Head Start in school. I believe in it. Mm -hmm. So it was a good program, at least as the one they had here. Um. But as far and that that was during a time the um the early to mid sixties that was a time where there weren't a whole lot of pre kindergarten or, or kindergarten programs available across the country, so that was the question: How do we deal with the lack of preschools, but the fact that there are so many homes with televisions? How can we get that to work? And at the time, half of the nation's school districts did not have kindergartens. And that's hard to believe because we're, we're talking 50 years ago. Half yeah. Yeah. Did, like crazy. every school, every school now has kindergarten and a lot of places have, have pre-K pre-K or still things like something like similar head start. So in comes a lady named Joan Gantz Cooney, who was a TV writer and producer. And sometime during 1966, she had a little dinner party. One of the guests there was a fellow by the name of Lord Lloyd Morissette, who was a psychologist and a Carnegie Corporation executive. And during this dinner, they discussed the potential of TV being used to greet, to reach a great number of inner city kids. So they chatted, they threw some ideas around, and Cooney put together a 55-page proposal called Television for Preschool Children. And in that report, she uh, gave her results on the feasibility of such a project. How can we use television to teach the kids? You have a lot of one, 
not enough of another. How can we use that to our advantage? Behind that proposal came $8 million in foundation and government funding to found the Children's Television Network, or the CTW. And that network was had a board of experts from fields uh, like education, child development, psychology, medicine, the social scientists, the arts and advertising, which tells you they were serious about this. It wasn't yeah. just some fly. Obviously, it wasn't just some fly by night thing, but they did their research and they understood, hey, why can't we use what we've got to bridge the gap until we can get closer to where we need to be, if that makes mm-hmm. sense? Yeah. So yeah. that's what they did. So. Cooney and Morissette, they were looking for an education model that they could um, have funded, obviously, through um, private sector and governmental support. And Sesame Street ended up being the first uh, CTW program that was done. And like I said, it debuted in 1969. And the other ones was a little so-called electric company that debuted, debuted in 1971. I believe it ran mm-hmm. through 1977. Um, yeah, that's Morgan Freeman. Yes, that's Morgan Freeman, who's always looked like Morgan Freeman. Yeah, he um, was easy reader. Yes. So there was a lot of research, a lot of very in-depth planning that went into how did they want this show to look. Who did they want to reach out to? And their first thought was reaching out to black and brown kids who, and I've said it before, I'll say it again. Anytime that there's any kind of deficiency in some kind of system in this country, children of color or people of color suffer even more disproportionately. And that's what they found was happening, that we're talking about a country who already doesn't have kindergartens and half its school districts. Guess who takes the brunt of that even more? Oh, I, oh. can't imagine. Uh huh. So their thought was, how do we want to look like? Who do we want to appeal? Who, who do we want to reach out to? And who do we want to represent? Who do we want to let know that we know they're there and we want them to watch? Mm-hmm. Black and brown kids. Right. So they took their time and they scouted around and they looked for a location or a setting that would represent an inner city neighborhood quote with a lot of brownstones and trash cans. <laughs> and the producers felt like this would help inner city kids relate more to the cast as being their neighbors. Right. You may find, you know, something a little wonky with the way that's said, but there's something to it, obviously. So, the producers scattered locations in Harlem, the Upper West Side, and the Bronx in New York City as models for the brownstones that would eventually become 123 Sesame Street. And while they wanted to make the setting itself look as authentic as the neighborhood those kids stayed in, they also wanted to make sure those kids saw faces that looked like theirs. So they put a premium mm-hmm. on making sure they brought in, at first, Black cast members. Yep. Yep. So... The original cast, who were chosen by the original producer, John Stone, consisted of four human actors. Matt Robinson, who played Gordon. Loretta Long, who played Gordon's wife, Susan. Will Lee, who played Mr. Hooper. And Bob McGrath, who played Bob. (laughs) Yeah, it was a a sad day when Mr. Hooper died. Yeah, yeah, that's what I heard. That's what I heard. So... 
Um, hmm. Does it, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead and if I am, tell me, um, hmm. does it say how, cause the first Gordon wasn't there. He was only there, what, two or three years. And then he was replaced with second Gordon who stayed on for like the next 40 something years. Um, does it say how long first Gordon was there? It, well, what I've got, unfortunately, didn't say specifically, okay. but I I think I vaguely kind of remember that happened. But uh, the research I, I pulled up didn't say that specifically. So, but Sesame Street, and the, and I, I I'll stop here and kind of segue a smidge. The sources that I pulled to research this, um, one of them was from Smithsonian Magazine, the other was New Yorker. One of those articles took the perspective of highlighting the emphasis that the show's creators had on appealing to black and brown kids. Mm-hmm. The other article did not. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Um, also, if you don't mind, because this relates to, to that. Mm-hmm. So, um, of course, when you said you wanted to do this in my head for the last 48 hours, I've been, or whatever it's been singing the reason that our generation only knows how to count to 12 and so i went and found the video for it so i could convert the the music and something i honestly never noted because you know it's like a ball going through a pin or pinwell a pinball mm-hmm. machine mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it starts off with a hand that goes and pushes the button that sets yes. the ball in motion yes i never even noticed it that hand is a brown hand it is not yes. a white hand which for the time, even though that's something small, mm-hmm. would have been a big deal, but it ties in to what you were saying. Mm-hmm. So that had to have been, obviously, a conscious decision to do that, mm-hmm. which is strange that something like that, looking back from, you know, that that would be considered like a bold move. But it's not strange at the same time, because I know the history of our country, but without going through all of that, I just found that interesting no, you're you're absolutely right. That was that was the whole idea to show to show images and depictions of children of color. Because mm-hmm. that's who you're trying to reach out to. Why wouldn't you want to show them? Right. Someone that looks just like them. That's the whole idea of representation, of course. So yeah, that makes yeah. perfect sense. That's something that seems like such a minor detail when you look back on it, you're like, oh, this is exactly why they did what they did. And this yeah. is exactly why. The cast that they had started out with the cast that they had, even though, you know, obviously as time went on, they add more and more diverse uh, human cast members. But that's what they started with, because that's the route that they wanted to go. So but when I say Sesame Street started out blackity black, 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 I mean, it was blackity black, black, black. Not to right. black. Um, one of the cast members, apparently, uh, let's see, had a husband. That worked at Harlem's Apollo Theater. You know the Apollo. They provided the musical talent, which was a 16-member youth ensemble named Listen My Brother, for the Sesame Street pilot. Fronting the group, which would make appearances throughout the first season, were three vocalists who would each achieve a measure of fame. You may know some of these things. Okay. Luther Vandross, who would go on to win eight Grammys. You know, he did a little something. I think I've heard of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robin Clark, who would sing with David Bowie in Simple Minds. And Fonzie Thornton, who would form Chic with Nal Rogers. And a later member of Sesame Street's touring band. Uh-huh. On guitar, 
was Clark's future husband, Carlos Alomar, a Puerto Rican native of Harlem who would write Fame with David Bowie Uh and John Lennon and collaborated with Bowie for decades. Jazz Jazz legend Nat Adderley Jr. played piano. In the very first episode, the musicians wore African dashikis, the black power fashion of the time. And before I go too much further, that very first episode was brought to you today by the letters W, S, and E, and by the numbers two and three. So that was the first episode. It was blackity black, black, black. No question. Yeah, yeah. You, you kind of threw me off there mentioning Luther Vandross's last name because um, most of his fans that I know are um, ladies, and he's generally just referred to as. Luther. Luther. Correct. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. He has a last name. Mm-hmm. And that's yes, it. Is. She just said it. <laughs> <laughs> He's normally just Luther. <laughs> early early guests in the first year on the show include James Earl Jones, gospel great Mahalia Jackson, politician Shirley Chisholm, baseball great Jackie Robinson, Ethel Kennedy, and Nina Simone. Mm. That that there that is just a stellar group of people for the and that doesn't even include all of the Muppets that then went on to be huge. That's just like all of those human people, human people, all of those humans <laughs> were <laughs> as opposed to Muppet people. <laughs> but that was a stellar group of people that went on to just, you know, do absolute nothing mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely empty careers after that um but yeah that was that's how they came out of the gate and of course the ratings were huge it was a smash within weeks people loved it people loved it now in in the next two or three years after a series of protests with the puerto rican and chicano communities Uh, Cooney brought in a Latin American advisory committee and in its third season added the characters of Maria, played by Sonia Manzano, and Luis, played by Emilio Delgado, who became the heart of the cast for decades. Yep. This. And then then some years later, of course, there was a call for, let's see, some female characters. And that happened. This is what happens when... The public makes its wants and uh, its wants and uh, needs really known, and the company takes notice and they take steps to rectify it. Hello, mm-hmm. you want representation? We'll give it to you. There it is. That's why it works so well because the public spoke and they listened and they made the accommodations to make sure that everybody they were trying to appeal to was represented. Period. Point blank. So, however. Not everybody liked that. Shocking. Sometime in 1970, Mississippi Public Television concluded mm-hmm. that its viewers were not ready for the portrayal of multiracial harmony on city streets and would not air Sesame Street. Parents successfully petitioned the station to bring it back and invited the show's cast to visit Jackson. When the show came to town, the local police showed up in riot gear. Hula. I mean, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't? But yeah, you know, they've they've always had an issue with the doggone race mixing, but I digress. But um, 
sometime in those first few years, there was a guy that started lurking around the meetings and coming in and people wondering, well, who the heck is this guy? That guy was Jim Henson, who had a popular show called Sam and Friends on an NBC affiliate in Washington, D.C. that had started in 1955. One of those puppets, because it was puppets, right. was this little green fella named Kermit. And Kermit had gotten so big, he actually showed up on The Tonight Show in 1957. But by 1962, Sam and Friends went off the air. And Henson and his Muppets, as he called his puppets, had outgrown it. And at that time, Henson was doing documentaries, films, and commercials. John Snow, the producer of Sesame Street, wanted to bring in John Henson. Henson was like, hmm, wait a minute. These Muppets are, this is my shit. I got to have, I got, I got guidelines before I agree. And he wanted to retain all rights to his Muppets and split any merchandising from the characters 50-50 with CTW. They said, okay. So he signed on and brought on his team that included Frank Oz, who performed Bert, Cookie Monster, and Grover, and Carol Spinney, who had played a lion on Boston's Bonzo Circus. And I assume that's a show that was local there. And now she began the roles of Oscar the Grouch and Big Bird. But Hanson brought a lot more than just his Muppets. He also produced many of the show's inserts the short films in between the, the live action uh, puppets right. that worked like the commercials. But in 1976, he left to do his own thing on what we now know as the Muppet show, but that's okay. He took Carmen, he took Miss Piggy, Fozzie, we know the Muppets, but obviously our favorites remain. Right. Bert, Bert Nernie, Oscar, Bert Nernie, Oscar, Grover, Count Von Count, Mr. Snuffleupagus. Mr. Snuffleupagus. They still remain. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like a whole lot was lost. They just kind of split off in two. But what they found, the effects of Sesame Street were profound. And uh, they call it grade for age status. That the children that watched this show entered school. At that time would have been first grade. They entered school at grade level and in elementary school. Stayed on grade level. And in fact, that a study that was done concluded, quote, was particularly pronounced for boys, Black, non-Hispanic children, and those living in economically disadvantaged areas. And it only costs $5 per kid per year. How can you argue with it? And yet. And yet. <laughs> and yet. But now, Sesame, it still exists. Even though it is no longer on PBS, it has been since moved to HBO since 2015. But it does appear in some form or fashion in just about 150 countries, including Mexico, the Netherlands, South Africa, Northern Ireland, India, and Afghanistan, mm -hmm. some version or another. So when we say this is a worldwide thing, it is a worldwide thing. And it, it means a lot especially considering its origins or the reasons why the creators wanted to do what they did to begin with. There was an interesting bit, and I, I didn't include it in my original notes, but I remember it from my research, that in this, I think it was the second season, they introduced a, a, little, a little Black character, undoubtedly Black, mm 
because up until this time, none of the puppets could be supposedly defined racially. Right. It was like, you know, how can you do that? They're puppets. But they intentionally brought in an, unamb- an unambiguously mm-hmm. black character by the name of Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. People, lost, people lost their cookies because they didn't like the way he talked, which we would call it right now in this day and age, AAVE or African-American vernacular English. They called it like black English or black slang back then, whatever. Um, Roosevelt Franklin, again, yeah, he's black. He was created and voiced by Matt Robinson, the actor who played Gordon. And yeah, people didn't like it because of the way he spoke. And they eventually got rid of the character, which I think was a loss. Yeah. Because we now know the AAVE is uh, a legit dialect. It's, right. it's, it's been the source of many studies. It's not bad or broken English. It's just simply a dialect. Right. I think I think it would have been good. And that may have that may have been ahead of its time, that particular character to introduce that to people in the 60s like that. I, I'm gonna go with ahead of its time. Yeah. And that's unfortunate. It really is, but okay. Sometimes you sometimes you have to ease people into things and which is kids we're talking about. If you really want to talk about protecting kids, hmm, sometimes it's okay to tell them the truth. That's just me. Mm-hmm. That's just yeah. me. Yeah. I was never named for parent of the year, but mine's still alive and she's thriving. So what can I say? Anyway. <laughs> I'd say you did a pretty good job. I think I did. I think I did. She's got no she's got no record and um so I'm, I think we're good. I think we're good. So but I think you had a couple of of little um of little blurbs you want to share about some some of your favorite moments from this uh historic program well um yeah i got you know a couple of the popular sesame street songs and this is gonna show you my age i used to have sesame street records when i was a kid (laughs) and um that's one of the reasons i i'm sort of keened in on the Gordon one and Gordon two is because on one of my records, it had first Gordon. And then my other two records had second Gordon. And I'm looking one time at the, you know, the album cover and I'm like, mom, who's that? She's like, that's Gordon. I'm like, no, that's not Gordon. That's Gordon. She's like, that's the original Gordon. And then he was replaced with this actor. And I was like, oh, that was, that was too much for, you know, six-year-old me's brain, I guess. But um, anyway, as I was saying earlier that I'd been thinking nonstop about the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve song, I had a thought, and I would like your opinion on this. Mm-hmm. Is the reason that it stopped at twelve because twelve is the number of numbers on a clock? Should be. And they wanted kids to get that numbering in to help, like, you know, subconsciously with telling time on a you know, knowing the numbers for a clock. It's as as reasonable as a as as a as the answer if I've ever heard. I really I've really never thought about it, but it makes sense to me. It's I'm trying to think of the original cartoon. With the way I mean, they did everything so purposefully though. <laughs> right. I don't it may be. I honestly I can't think of it ever being sung any other way but with twelve. Right. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, so that's that's a good question. Yeah, here and hmm. the music on this, actually listening to the music through adult ears, the music part, not the lyric. The music's pretty damn, pretty damn catchy. So uh, anyway, uh, here we go. And if that isn't the funk, the whole funk, and nothing but the funk, I don't know what is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's Come some. Uh, <laughs> that's... Come on. You know that you, you remember white kids were sitting in the living room like, what's that music? What is what is that? I always thought it was cool. So, and <laughs> as the resident, you know, whitey. <laughs> Shush. <laughs> But, I'm serious, but that I'm, I'm betting you that was that was a kind of music that a lot of kids that were watching this show had never heard of, or their parents I, for that matter. They're I like, agree oh, with you. Is that, is that that jungle music? Shh. Yeah, he's and they they hit count. it with counting. Yes, yeah. he's learning to count. <laughs> yeah, I wanted, I wanted to share um, one of the um, bits that I enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. So this is one of the ones I particularly enjoy. Even even all these years later, I thought it was just the sweetest little um, animated skit. And the premise is a mom is sending her young daughter down to the corner store to buy a few groceries. It's called I Can Remember. Now, don't forget a loaf of bread, a container of milk and a stick of butter. If you can't remember, I'll write it down for you. That's okay, Mommy. I won't forget. I remember. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. A loaf of bread, a container of milk, and a stick of butter. Sir, could I have a loaf of bread, a container of milk, and, and, gee, I can't remember. I just, I love it. I absolutely love that little skit. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like deceptively simple animation. It's, yeah. It's really, and if you, if, listening friends, if you've ever seen it, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, please go look it up. Um, but it's it's a very um, warm colors to it because the mom and daughter obviously are black. The girl has the cutest little fro and she's just rolling down the street, memorizing the list. And she gets to the store and she can't remember everything until she does. She manages to make it back home with all the items. It's the sweetest thing. And yeah. just something that simple, even animated showing these two black characters it meant a lot to the kids that were sitting around watching this stuff i can't yeah. i can't stress it enough i can't stress it enough so that was one of my my favorite uh sesame street moments it sticks in my head I, after all these years mm-hmm. I, I completely 
understand why after watching that because I was like, oh my god, I how many years has it been since I've seen that? Forty five. So yes. I was like, oh wow, yeah, no, that's just one of those things that as soon as you pulled it up, I was like, oh my god, yes. I remember that, and then watching it again, yeah, yes, oh boy, yeah, and yeah. I guess we're gonna we're gonna come we're coming close to the end, but I think. I think we have a little something from two of the most more famous Sesame Street. Well, it, it's one. Um, you know, growing up, I think like most people, you know, Ernie was the the funner of the two. Bert was a little <laughs> dry, stoic, uptight. He said stoic. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, everybody... Ernie's Ernie's the the fun one, but you know, as a fifty year old guy, I I totally identify with Bert now, and living with Ernie would be annoying as hell. <laughs> you know, oh gosh, I I think living with Ernie would make you like Bert. <laughs> mm. Oh yeah, yeah, when you think about it, yeah, Bert is as a result of Ernie. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I'm going to play the uh, uh, Ernie singing Rubber Ducky, but <laughs> I am going to I am going to throw this little tidbit out there. Um, that's sort of interesting. So when my mom was in hospice, there was there was a couple days there where she was just sort of laying there and she she was still talking and everything, and she wanted us to play um, like songs that she had always liked throughout her life so we're in there you know we're pulling up on my you know youtube music okay and then i would play the song and then she'd kind of ask you hey could you play this for me and so we were going through all of these songs because she was like i just want to hear it one more time okay one of the last songs my mom requested to hear was rubber ducky by ernie oh man <laughs> yeah it was that and uh she also wanted to hear the Mr. Rogers theme song, oh. but um, this was, yeah. So this was actually one of the last songs she, she'd listened to. So there's that little sad bit of information, but, <laughs> but I, I don't know why I just found that interesting. Cause she was just like, you know, I always liked watching Sesame street with, you know, with the kids, with you guys. And I always liked that song and, so there you, go. there you go. I I'm going to uh, going to play the big rubber ducky. Well, here I am in my tubby again, and my tubby's all filled with water and nice fluffy suds. And I've got my soap and washcloth to wash myself. And I've got my nifty scrub brush to help me scrub my back. And I've got a big fluffy towel to dry myself when I'm done. But there's one other thing that makes tubby time the very best time of the whole day. And do you know what that is? Mm -hmm. It's a very special friend of mine, my very favorite little pal. Oh, Rubber Ducky, you're the one. You make bath time lots of fun. Rubber Ducky, I'm awfully fond of you. Bovo Bodio, Rubber Ducky, joy of joys. When I squeeze you, you make noise. 
Robber Ducky, you're my very best friend, it's true. Oh, every day when I make my way to the tubby, I find a little fella who's cute and yellow and chubby. Rubber dub dubby, rubber ducky, you're so fine. And I'm lucky that you're mine. Rubber ducky, I'm awfully fond of you. Hey, rubber ducky, would you like me to scrub your back with my nifty little scrub brush? <laughs> you would? Okay, how's this? Hey, you want me to scrub behind your ears? Oh, I see. You don't have any ears, do you? Well, how about your tummy? Scrub his little ducky tummy. Ooh, he's ticklish. Oh, every day when I make my way to the tubby, I find a little fella who's cute and yellow and chubby. Rub-a-dub-dubby, rub-a-ducky, you're so fine. And I'm lucky that you're mine. Rubber ducky, I'd like a whole pond of rubber ducky. I'm awfully fond of you. You know, if ever there was a bathroom that the floor was completely full of water after the someone took a bath, it would have to be after Ernie took a bath. And and that explains why Bert is Bert. Yeah, he's I probably. He's probably slipped and got a few concussions from the aftermath of an Ernie bath. Concussions, slip discs, oh, busted knees, etc., etc., etc. But hey, there it is. There it is. Yep. Push me straight in all its glory. Um. So here we are, friends, at the end of our our listening time. Thanks again for joining us, Jack. Do you want to take us out? Sure. Um. We appreciate everybody listening to the show and if you would like to uh help us out so we can continue saving the world you can do so at buymeacupofcoffee.com backslash hyperfocus pods and with that we will catch you on the next one bye bye and now folks it's time to say good night we sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. <laughs>